Welcome, everyone, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex. Hello. And Troy. Hello, everyone. Chloe will not be joining us today as um, she is both illiterate and obstinate. And <laughs> But you, you can join us by giving us your thoughts, responses, and tirades. Um, leaving a voicemail on our Book Nerds hotline. The number is one nine seven eight two five five three four zero four. We do not have an introductory conversation opener, but but Alex was telling us about his antibiotics. Continue, Alex. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So I'm taking. <laughs> anti- <laughs> so to make being quarantined even worse, I'm on antibiotics, which aren't. Which are fine, but I can't drink alcohol in them, so I can't even drink during quarantine. And that's my only vice at this point. So, it's just... isn't it three or fewer drinks, or is that just pain meds? I think that's pain meds. Something about these antibiotics that says you won't be able to like break down the alcohol, and they'll just puke it up. Oh damn! So uh, it doesn't sound damn. worth doesn't sound worth the risk to me. So nah. it's just the most boring quarantine you could possibly have. Well, don't worry. You've got a couple more weeks of it. Hopefully, it'll be a little less boring later on. Yeah, yeah, right. All I do I is was, go to work. I got a. I have a topic for us to talk about. I got a separate book that I've just been reading on the side. So three people from different friend groups all recommended, or they all said it worked. The um, the Neil Strauss, the Rules of the the Game guy. I got that book. It's a. Uh, it's interesting. It's like it's got some good flirting tips and like social cues, but a lot of it's just creepy. (laughs) It's like tricking people into wanting to talk to you instead of just them wanting to talk to you. The only part of the book that I found super interesting is he like has a style diary because that was his code name. And uh, at the end, he's like talking about all these crazy adventures. And then he's like, I am very depressed. (laughs) And I was like, oh, all right. I want to read his book, uh, The Truth, where he's just like, yeah, the uh, the whole pickup artist thing is gross, and I'm a sex addict. And I was like, that honestly sounds like a much more interesting read. That makes more sense. And and the thing is with all this pickup artist stuff is that I'm well, I don't know. I'm pretty much I'm pretty certain that all of the advice they'll ever give you will never be as good as just like being confident and normal. Yeah. You know what I you know, you know what That's I mean? What like most of it is. It's like mm-hmm. go talk to people. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Just like carry yourself with a little pride and be nice and just you'll work be out a little bit. Like it, you Yeah, do. It, it, and don't worry about being rejected by people. Like not everybody's gonna fucking like you. It's fine. Yeah. Right. I mean a lot of the stuff that I have found interesting isn't like pickup artist stuff, it's just random social psychology bits that he throws in and i was like oh all right (laughs) so it's basically just like some social psychology that's cool the weird thing about it is it has like a be the best man you can be like find all these hobbies and they like have quotes that are a little cheesy because immediately after it's like to crush puss and it's like oh like this just (laughs) cheapens it just cheapens it so much like i don't want to read these quotes and it feels like it's all hollow like they're how do I describe it? They're like simping. A, they're doing they're doing yeah. hobbies just to be a simp. Yeah. No, it's really God, true though. It is worst. simping like a hundred percent. I knew when I was in college, the um 
European, not the landlord, but my, I can't think of it, my RA. He became a pickup artist, and now he has, like, a bunch of tattoos, and he's always posting, like, inspirational videos and stuff on Facebook. It's so funny. He's like, follow your dreams. He's like, oh, I decided to leave the house today. And he's surrounded by, like, three really gorgeous women. It's, and now he has, like, conferences where he basically runs, like, a pyramid scheme. It's like, oh god, yeah, dude, that's uh, that's the life you're living it. <laughs> Do you guys remember the uh, the New Hampshire state rep who turned out to be the guy who started the Red Pill forum or subreddit or whatever? No, I did not live up here for that. No. Yeah, yeah. You don't. You weren't there for that. There was like a whole. Um, I think it was the Daily Beast. There, they broke the story. It sounds um, familiar, yeah. but I don't yeah, remember. We had, we had a state rep, and he was the the guy who. He owned those, um, I forget what the name of the company is, but it's like those computer repair stores. There's like five or six of them in the state. Um, And yeah, he was the one who started the Red Pill um, subreddit and uh, got outed from from state government over it. Um, But he had had very similar point of view to the uh, pickup artist stuff that you're talking about. It's like they're just... I don't know. It's creepy. It's like all these lines in there's even there's a list of like 45 of them and it's not even a line. It's supposed to be a script. So it's like a page long of basically how to start a conversation with random people, which like to be fair, it is difficult to just walk up to a random group of people somewhere and start a conversation. That is difficult. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, why don't you just, you know, like, talk about your personality or your hobbies <laughs> instead of like doing these weird things to try to get to people to like neg them into liking you it's also it's bizarre it's also like why are you walking up to a group of strangers trying to get pussy <laughs> you know what i mean like make a friend i don't know you know like get it yeah right I, yeah, that's right. like that's like the basis of that is just like what i don't know it seems ridiculous yeah, and you know, just be friendly and things will generally work out okay. Most people respond well to just being friendly, even if you're a little bit awkward. And, you know, talking to strangers in general is pretty much awkward no matter what, unless you are in some sort of position of esteem, right? Like if you're a, I don't know, if you're at a show and you're in the band, right, then I guess it's not awkward talking to people because they're expecting to be talked to. But like most of the time, if you're out and about in the world, right, like your first interaction with anybody is going to be awkward. Yeah, maybe. I mean, people are pretty forgiving. Yeah, definitely. Because they probably feel awkward, too. They're probably a little off put anyway. Like in their, you know, often I find that people are glad that you're just like, you know, I don't know, engaging. Mm. Except for in New England, of course, when nobody wants you to talk to anybody. I don't <laughs> buy that. I talk to strangers all the time. Like, for real. Yeah. Like I, talk, I talk to people at the dump. I talk to people going on walks. <laughs> I'm the not gun, kidding. The gun store, at the gym. <laughs> for, yeah. I mean, I, really, though, like I talk to strangers pretty often. Uh, yeah. I, probably because I don't look intimidating. You know what I mean? I'm not like a... yeah. No, dude, I think it's more you're than like, just you're a socially twink, yeah. competent person. I don't think I'm very... I think I'm on the low end of social functioning. Really? But... I don't think that at all, man. You've got some pretty high emotional intelligence compared to, at least to Sam and I. <laughs> yeah, we're retarded. It's true. Well, I don't know, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't see that. 
Because I f- I'm like pretty awkward and sh- you know sh- introverted. I guess whatever. Yeah. Everyone's Nobody weird. Feels it or everybody feels that, but it's not what other people see. You know, right? Yeah. And also, also our social circles are not like we're not hanging out with winners. Um, <laughs> no, no, we're not, not. Not like our friends are cool and smart, but we're not hanging out with like a lot of alphas. You know, uh, no. real real social Certainly guy. Not. No, we're hanging out with. <laughs> We're hanging out with nerds like us, which is cool. This is fine. Yeah, dude. I would right. rather talk about books and play magic cards and do random shit like that. It's more fun. And just like the social posturing is so weird to me. Like, I don't know. The college I went to was so rich. It That's the only time I've been like exclusively in a group of people that are upper class and I do not fit in. And it's just, it's so weird. And it's like, I don't really want want this like you guys are awash with money but like nobody's happy because it's all social posturing it's just that's you, not worth tell us yeah tell us more about that what, what's the deal what makes them you know what made you not fit in and um how did they interact with one another um i've already used hollow hollow isn't the right term for it but things are cheapened when you're going for an experience but you're just doing it to show up like, it doesn't mean anything if you can travel everywhere all the time and you're just flying left and right to these places, taking the photos, leaving. And it doesn't mean anything to you because the money doesn't mean anything to you and you can just go back. But when they go, like when they've traveled or when I've traveled with them, there's like, they don't really know much about the history. They don't know much about the culture and they don't care. It's like they're just going to go to the nice restaurants, they're going to go to the nice clubs, they're going to go to the nice shops, and they're going to leave. It's just, Mm. it's so weird. Their mindset is different. And it's not so bad if you get a lot of these people on their own, but man, the hive mind is so real. And it really is, I feel, just the different class, like upper class people, they are focused on social posturing. Because, like, the money doesn't really matter. They're all rich. So they all have to, like, out-prestige each other. And especially in college when it was Greek life, it was just what bar are you going to? What restaurant are you going to? Everybody's always eating out, brunching, spending probably, like, $250, $300 a day, or a day, a week, uh, going out, eating, drinking all the time. And it's just like, when do you, you know, work or just do hobbies that aren't spending money yeah or lounging see see that's so you did you meet any of them who were exceptions to that rule because like i could only if i had that kind of money and could travel whenever i wanted to like dude i would be god that would make me so happy right like i could go i could go wherever i wanted to and you know like you said you can like engage with the history you can um you can you know learn the culture learn the language right like it would open up all these like incredible experiences and opportunities and it just blows my dick off I, not so much like i'm hoping that there's at least some of them who are interested in oh they know, are there's like their wealth there's yeah. nerdy upper class kids too but it's just i don't know i you just get a sense of it when you're around them it's really more the perspective in what we realize or what we take for granted as being like middle class bourgeois people more or less versus what they come to expect as normal and what they don't know having grown up in the circles that they've grown up in. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've met okay. like plenty of cool nerdy people that were upper class. Um, they would travel all the time. They lived in pretty magnificent houses. Of course, they had like intellectual parents. Like I've known a lot of people where both their parents are professors and mm-hmm. like they're cool, but whoo, man, the liberalism runs deep in them. Like I got, I've been thought crimed many times where it's like, you shouldn't oh, yeah. say that. You can't think that. And it's like, just, just shut up. But also like, <laughs> they have no perspective of what it's like to be blue collar. I honestly don't much either, but I've worked like four or five blue collar jobs and I've at least interacted with these people and have sympathy for them. I'm not like, I don't basically hate MAGA people just for being who they are. Well, I think the woke stuff thing is just like an excuse for them to uh, rationalize their hatred of poor people and make it virtuous. Like, I really think it's like they're like they've just found a new way to frame it. And it's not because they're better than them because of their station in life. It's that it's because the the working people are the are are, uh, uh, was problematic or whatever. Problematic. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And you can really see the like the. I don't know, falsity of it all, right? With how it it so conforms to the like Democratic Party constituency, right? Because they don't no one no woke person ever talks about how Prop 8 was defeated by the African American vote, right? Or was succeeded rather. Wait, right. What's, that what's like Prop eight. Prop eight in California that was um to legalize gay marriage and it, I believe it whatever I yeah, it was to legalize gay marriage and it was voted down in California the first time around because of the African-American vote. The parishes, the Christian parishes came out in force and they voted down Prop 8. And um, that was a big deal, right, for, um, for like, I don't know, mainstream liberal gay rights. And But it was due to the African-American vote. And, like, that is forgotten, right, as you can see. I mean, Alex is at least decently plugged into politics and he doesn't remember. Um and, you know, they use it as a bludgeoning tool against the quote unquote white working class. And they pretend that, you know, no other group of people. And I, I'm not saying that, like, you know, whatever, like, I don't know, blue collar or lower, you know, lower earning working class people are like somehow morally inferior. But like, you know, they don't they don't assess any other group that way. Right. It's just a way for them to, you know, hold their superiority over whoever they need to be their ideological enemy. And I find it I find it not only like like lame, but at this point, right, with all of the politics that has happened since idea identity politics has come into being like, uh, I don't know, it like just has like a really poor, long lasting aftertaste. Mm. No, Alex, I agree that it's a disdain for the poor because it really is different cultures just like customs are different like how people live their lives and like milestones in their lives are different based on if you are rich poor or middle class like i think the chasm is so great that it is as shocking if you marry outside of your economic status as if you were to marry a different race or a different culture like I really do believe it's that stark. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it's like the people who are like the, the MAGA base or whatever in this country are middle class for sure. Mm -hmm. Like that. And that's like the funniest thing is like, these people are 
I mean, there's there, the Trump got votes from all over, so you can't really just mm-hmm. pigeonhole one type of person. But like, there's a massive segment of like tradespeople, college educated people who are making like a lot of money, like or like not a, even not even college educated, but like you know, I don't know, the manager at a car dealership, right? I always forget figures. about that. Yeah, they do. Does does good, right? Supports Trump, right? The fucking Pawn Stars guy. Pawn shop owners, right? Like, they they support Trump. The Pawn Stars guys do? Chumley? Yeah. uh, uh, At least Rick does. What about the old man? Uh, The old man's dead, so we don't know. Oh, really? Damn. Shit, dude. He's been dead for a little bit now. Fuck that. I mean, I haven't haven't kept up with the show, so... I'm glad he didn't have to witness coronavirus. I hope he's at peace. He would have definitely died from it. Yeah, you got his shit fucked up. I mean, all of them would probably die from it. I've read quite a few things that being obese like greatly increases your chance of not doing well. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like the main indicator. Or but, ages, but we're not talking um, about coronavirus. Right. Yeah, Rick, we're, not, yeah, we're not doing it. And I want to say that Rick, um, he said that Trump will be remembered. I think, I think he said it's the greatest president since Lincoln. So... <laughs> You know, they said the same thing about Obama. I remember when Obama was president, a relative telling me that he was the best president uh, in his lifetime, at the very least, and he said, and maybe since Lincoln. And obviously that's aged poorly, that sentiment. Yeah. I feel like that's said with literally every single president, though. Depending on which side you're on, they're either the best or the worst. I don't think with W. Bush. (laughs) Okay, yeah, nobody. Yeah, okay, true. Nobody was saying W. was the best of all time. Although certainly no, not with HW. Oh, HW, no. HW. No, both Bushes were both kind of not beloved by Republicans. They're rank Bushes, you know? Yeah. I was, I don't know. I guess my view is also colored by it because W's presidential library was on the, my college campus. And so he would literally just be like wandering around campus and people would always shout four more years at him. And it's really bizarre. Like, I also met Rush Limbaugh's niece. I knew the daughter of Steve Ducey from uh, Fox and Friends. Really? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, she had a real, real hard crush on my one artist friend. Um, who else? You should have gotten that Ducey money. Damn, dude. No, no. Well, you'd have to have met her, but <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll pass. I'll pass on all these people. Makes me disdain the rich, not aspire to be one of them yeah yeah all right we're ready to do the book this seems to be a good stopping point sure hell yeah all right fam so we are continuing our foreign sci-fi unit by discussing the second half of a planet for rent by yas um planet for rent is a set of vignettes taking place in a universe where earth has made contact with a federation of aliens that turned the planet into a tourist park Yas's gritty, playful prose shows the depravity of survival for the oppressed humans of Earth. They sell their bodies as social workers to the Xenoids, a word for the collection of aliens, travel the galaxy as freak show artists, and muscle each other for jobs and planetary security. This week's stories include short expositions on the divide-and-rule tactics of the Xenoids, what kind of people um, collect the refuse of humanity, and how humans grapple with the endless tomorrow of Xenoid rule. Uh, The second half of the book is more somber than bombastic or humorous like the first half. 
Yas introduces us to the mechanically-minded prodigy Alex, who blackmails the Setians into giving him citizenship by threatening to release plants for world-altering technology. Uh, we finally meet the mysterious Jow and his attempt to illegally escape Earth with comrades Friga and Adam. Uh, the gist of it is that they don't make it, but it's a harrowing journey on how they do not. Uh, Yas is the pen name for Jose Gabriel Sanchez. Um, as we said before, probably the coolest guy to have ever lived. Um, he continues to squat in a netted tank top. Uh, my favorite quote of all time now is his mother saying that his three vices are books, women, and ice cream, which I, I personally strive to make those my three vices. And um, he's the lead singer for Cuban heavy metal band. Um, he resides in Savannah, and um, we are going to – is we've reached out to him, and he's gotten back to us about uh, interviewing him in probably the summer or fall um, with the coronavirus uh, in full swing. He doesn't really have great internet connection, um, but we're hoping to be able to do an interview. Um, my sister-in-law speaks Spanish, so we're going to have a translator for that, and we're going to see how that goes in the podcast format. Um, but we're going to try to make it work and set that up um you can find his book through restless books um a publisher in new york and we'll leave that in the description i put that in the description for last episode so yeah um we finished the book friends and i wanted to ask um so i wanted to start with uh the divers story um because i thought that was it was it, it it was one of the like this has been a very charming engaging book and uh it definitely has made me reflect at certain points but when he was discussing like the the two different divers right the diver who you know a diver in this society is basically like those that collect you know the waste of humanity um you know like whatever use tvs or in this case like hollow projectors or whatever and some of them gather it to sell it, right? And they lead normal but maybe socially faux pod lives. Others just collect it. Um, and those are kind of like, you know, in our society, like the crazy people with um, shopping carts full of garbage. Um, what did you think of his description of those two people? And um, did did that story jump out to you at all? That was my favorite of the shorts out of all the little short stories that come before the... Oh, really? Longer vignettes. Yeah, it struck me just because I felt like that was a pretty clear, um, I don't know, a clear take on his view of not necessarily art, but some people just enjoy life. And he describes the ones that keep it as kind of being crazy, but they always feel like they have the secret to something and they're making little contraptions and they're happy even though they're dirty and living in squalor, whereas mm. everybody else is still off awfully because the aliens basically have enslaved us. But these people literally living at the bottom of society are doing just fine because they feel like they're discovering something new all the time. Mm. Alex? I mean, I I really liked um, the last one. Um, yeah, I was about to mention that. Somewhere can... Tomorrow. Yeah, Somewhere Tomorrow. I thought, so, you know, like I said in the intro, right? Like, it's a more of a somber tone than a... Like the earlier stories were very like not uh, they were they had letdowns at the end, but they were upbeat, right? Like they were aspiring, um, you know, they were feisty. Um, whereas the the like everything felt very serious in the second half. And the somewhere tomorrow, I think, really encapsulated the mood of the second half of this book because 
it was you know it was really like the like how a a person would deal with the inevitability of being oppressed forever right like not just in your life but in your your children's life right like he opens up you know obviously with some sort of personal motivation as to what like what would a science fiction uh what would a science fiction writer um think about these things right what happens after humans make alien contact um and in this case are subjugated under that contact there is no you know there is no science fiction of the 1960s where we're imagining like a you know a star trek like universe the future is already here and it's here forever um what does that do to the human imagination and i found that very um I don't know. Nightmarish and unsettling was kind of the feelings I got from that that uh, essay. I thought it was greatly unsettling. Where I mean, especially when it came right after Escape Tunnel, which was I felt the heaviest of the stories. Where it's just like there is no hope. You're gonna die. They all die in the end. And then right afterwards, it's like after humans are basically subjugated, it's just people stop predicting the future. And it's just like, ugh, God, everything that I've read about like East Germany and just like how people lived in despair. And it's just like, you just give up because, well, what else can you do? Why predict the future? What's the point? Right. Why imagine anything? Because it's going to be that way forever. Yeah. My favorite story, I think out of the whole book was Escape Tunnel, just because it had it had some good action. It had, we finally get to meet Zhao, although he's not nearly, he's. It was not what I thought he would be. <laughs> Quite the opposite, actually. So let's get into that. What was, you know, Jao was kind of this, like, elusive character in the book. And um, I was expecting something different. Um, I'm not necessarily disappointed with how Jao was presented, but um, he definitely wasn't as, I don't know, symbolic as I wish he wished he was to going to be or expected him to be. Um, what did you guys think of Escape Tunnel and then Zhao's role in it? I thought that Zhao was going to be kind of the the pure artist or the human that strives. And it kind mm-hmm. of set him up as that because everybody looks up to him as the pure human. And I feel like Yas did it on purpose where it's a massive, like, I don't know, you just feel the bottom drop out when it's like, oh, this guy that literally everybody loves as the best artist, the best everything the pure lover, the idealist, he just doesn't care about anything. Like he's resigned to the world that he lives in, or he's resigned to being a slave and to dying throughout the whole story. Like he's just so calm. It pisses off the other characters when they're in the ship, but he's not resigned. He like is so singularly focused on escaping, right? Like it's the only thing that matters to him at that point. I mean, obviously, he's not motivated to do anything about that except for get people who can do things. But um, and then, of course, and then at the end of the story, right, he dies. He jumps out into space. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, right? Like, there's it. I thought Jao would be like this. I don't know. Like, I thought Yoss would make a point with him. Well, right? and I don't. Uh, sorry, Sam. No, go ahead. Well, what? Well, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> But it seems like the point like that I thought he was kind of trying to make is that like the the bonds and like connections between all these different people, like mm. the way that like circle kind of expands, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Moy and Zhao ends up being uh, Etu Brute and uh, yeah. mm-hmm. 
Leah, Laya, and mm-hmm. um, and then right go, going right back to the beginning, like it's like how like those like that like one bond and how when you expand like all those connections, what it looks like and what like the impact of that looks like. Yeah, I, I thought was, I agree with that. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if that was his intended point, but that's kind of something I took away from it. I think in so. I felt less satisfied with the escape tunnel story um, after I read it. But then when I read the last um, story platinum card, I felt it connected more. Right. And I agree with you, Alex, where it, you know, it feels like, um, I don't know, like that it it feels, sometimes it feels a little like maybe, I don't know, like platitude or boring to say that like life finds a way. Right. But like, when you get with um, Leah or Lilia, I forget how you say her name, and um, Etu Brute, right, in their relationship, um, it it struck me as um, it struck me as that, like that life finds a way, that these um, these sentient connections we have with other people are are elusive, they're difficult to um, to define. Uh, they're unpredictable and um, and they they're I don't know beautiful in their own way and and that Yoss was kind of in constructing this world he was showing sort of the process of this like this blooming and dying and blooming and dying of all these relationships but how all together it makes this different whole right and perhaps there is a very hard to grasp optimism that you could get from these stories, right? That is the only Where, optimism in the story is the people's connections. Right. It, it, it right towards the end lies uh, thinking about becoming friends with a neighbor boy, right? Mm. Right. Like That's it all kind of just like starting over again. But even like the end of the story, even like her, um, her relationship with Etu Brute, right? Even though Etu Brute is going to die, Right. That there, you know, we get some relation, some idea of like a, a compassion and connection between Etu Brute and Moy in performing death, but in um, in Platinum Card, we get Lilia and Etu Brute like there is there's a connection there, right? Like the Kawasar has um, a a sympathy, a compassion for a human, and that is that is what makes the difference between all of the other stories, right? The voxel story, um, the story with the planetary security guard, all these things, right? The relationship between the Xenoid and the human is one of oppressed on the human side and on the Xenoid side is like oppression, maybe pity, right? But like Etchebrute and, um, and Moy and then Etchebrute and Lilia, there's a sense of like a growing uh, respect of dignity of um, of love and it you know and this is why I think Yoss is like actually you know um, I, I'm not like the greatest fan of his prose but like I think he's a really good writer is because that never came off as heavy-handed like right. it never it was so it was it was diffuse enough for it to feel like sit with you for a long time but it wasn't it, it didn't it wasn't so diffuse that you couldn't i don't know pick up the point if you wanted to very natural yes extremely i liked at the end that the book was 
in all these stories, it's about humans. And then in the last one, while it's being told from uh, Leah's perspective, it's like flipped. And the actual main character is Etu Brute. And I just, I don't know why. I really liked that. I did not expect that to happen just because, I don't know, the Xenoids had always been kind of at arm's length. And mm-hmm. even Ete Bru- Etu Brute was when he was with Moy. Um, but then it really does dive into how he feels alone, completely alone. And I felt more for him, or I guess her. Although, I don't know, they their species has seven genders. So he's like kind of a woman, he says at the end. Them. But them, yes, they. Uh, I felt a lot of sympathy for them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how could you not, right? Like, rejected from your own kind, can't fit in anywhere else. Um, can't have children. Yep, can't have children. Um, and so he just decides to give everybody STDs as revenge. Dude, that didn't make... I, I really had a hard time understanding the motivation for that. I had the exact same thought. I, that was one of the few parts in the book where I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Really? I don't know. It made sense to me. Like, he picks up what humans interpretation of art is through Moy, and then he comes to earth or they come to earth and they start to understand like the imperfection of it and how the imperfection is the beauty versus like setian art and then all these new human artists are just groveling for the perfection of xenoid art and so he like purposefully gives STDs to all the people that grovel at the new form of art without appreciating their history. It seemed kind of out of left field. I agree with that, but I get where why they did it. But yeah, it was kind of random or I didn't wasn't expecting it. I mean, I don't think it's random. I just think I'm having a hard time understanding the point he's trying to make. Like, like that could have not yeah. happened. Uh, right, but I think I think it is important. I just think we're missing it. Is, yeah, yeah, that could be. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I quite understand the kind of desperation that Etu Brute is going is under, right? Like, why he, you know, you could say it's like kind of a death drive thing where he loses his good friend Moy and he wants to destroy everything related to him, maybe to forget him or something like that. Especially since Moy is the cause of his wealth, right? He's extremely wealthy, as we find out at the end of um, Performing Death, when Moy um, is contracted to whatever, kill himself three times a week. Um, that's obviously the cause of his death. No, dude, um, it's the STD. That's the, oh, sad, right. that's the saddest yeah. part. He doesn't oh, even God, die. Yeah. He just continually goes through deaths, and then he gets an STD and dies. Right, that's a good point. I forgot about that. Like, yeah, oh, so, God. He, so Etubrute kills Moy. And by killing Moy, that guilt, right, he needs to let that out. But, I mean, hopefully we can interview Yas and ask him what he was trying to do with that. I feel like that's why he gives all of the other humans the STD, though, is because he, one, feels like intense guilt and shame about killing Moy, the only human that he's actually loved, who is like a true artist, so he's like quasi reliving it by having sex with the humans, but then also he doesn't care about giving them the STD because they're all like fake artists in their mind. And if there was like, I, I was kind of expecting there to be an element of those people being ones that had, uh, in one way or another, like crossed Moy mm. for yeah. for some reason, but it just like that didn't come. 
in the last story, it really, I don't know, it, I guess, took me out of the story a little bit that Leah was so sexualized and was nine. Like, yeah. it, I don't know, yeah. even if it was like 12, like, sure, that was, still would have been super young, but it like talks about pubic hair and is just thoughts a nine-year-old would not have. Like, I don't care how jaded the person is. There are just certain things that a nine-year-old would not have experienced yet. I guess... Dude, I mean, you say that, but, like, her whole experience is in the, you know, in the most... The barrio. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, that's... That is... It is 100%... Like, that is what they experience. You know, their, their older siblings are 12 and 13 and talking about having sex. Now, you know, even her... Um, you know, her boyfriend, right? Leah's boyfriend is like, they want to have sex, but he can't get an erection because he's fucking nine, you know? Yeah. But like they want to, because that's what the expectation is of them is to be sexual, is to be adults, you know, is to take, take care of themselves as, you know, whatever the underclass. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you, Troy. Like it is incredibly jarring to, listen to this nine-year-old you know when she gets on the bed and she's like you know holding her hands together and like tensing up you know waiting to be railed by this colossar like that was something else yep yeah her emotional ups and downs just seemed too mature to me i mean i know that a lot of intense trauma can bring on puberty early so maybe just the horrors of living in the barrio sure that could have made sense but i don't know the emotional maturity of it just like struck me differently but then i got into etu brute's psyche more so i stopped caring about it yeah but also like the human's lifespans are much shorter in this book like her grandmother died at like 46 right yeah right yeah drank herself to death right but i still think it if she was her grandmother like and she was nine you know what i mean like what age was her mother when she had her um that you know do you know what i'm saying yeah i yes <laughs> um so all right so then i wanted to kind of shift this conversation to you know when i read the second half um i knew that that yoss was pretty explicit about his um critique of cuban society and so i was reading a lot into that as i read and, you know, there were certain parts of that story, um, you know, with the, like, idea that you can't pick your career path. I assume that he is being at least somewhat honest talking about how if, you know, in Cuban society, if you go to university, you're given a bill at the end. Because he couldn't have been critiquing Western University because there is no such thing as going to school free here, right? But in Wait, cuba yeah you mean there's scholarships no but there's no it's not the expectation that you're going to go to school for free oh in right. america yeah but in cuba it is but it sounds like you know i mean if i'm to take uh yas's critique straightforwardly that you go to school and then at the end of your schooling you get a bill um and Ain't you that have to life, work that man. off <laughs> Ain't that yeah life um so I, I was just curious, like, damn, like, is is that true? <laughs> you know, like, what what what's going on there? And then, you know, all of the state censorship and repression he's talking about, like, 
Um, I mean, I don't get too much information or news out of Cuba, um, so I don't really know. But fuck, I mean, if that he obviously grew up in a time of great um, scarcity because it was in the post-Soviet Union era. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder how the state reacted to that, and you know what what actually it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never really thought about the schooling piece. I mean, the um, the story escape tunnel where they're trying to get away. At the end, in the acknowledgments, he specifically mentions like to the social workers I know and I met at like this and this street in Havana, and then he's also like to all the people that I talked to who didn't make it. So like the people that tried to get to Florida and were gunned down by the Cuban government. Does the Cuban government really gun people down trying to get to Florida? I don't know if they do anymore, but yeah, they have. Shoot crazy. your boat out. They'll probably try to rescue you and then imprison you. Like, I doubt they would try to just outright kill you. It's probably just to force you to come back, but... Damn, that's crazy. If you resist... Yeah, it's no joke, dude. Do you guys remember Elian Gonzalez? Who was that? It was that uh, Cuban kid in Florida that had the... The super famous picture of of the soldiers like raiding. He's like in the closet. Do you remember that? No. Like, are you chewing into the microphone? I was. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Elian Gonzalez. Oh damn! It was a huge deal. Uh, no, I, I remember guess... this photo. Yeah. Yeah. Guys in MP5. Right. That picture is fucked. It's crazy stuff. What what picture is that? Like, there was just that was that kid. I don't know. Wasn't he like a human rights um, mascot at one point or something like that? I thought that his he just his parents were like divorced and. Well, oh, what? nobody's ever had divorced parents before. Cry me a fucking river. But it was like split between <laughs> Cuba and, and Florida. I mean, they're basically the same place. I know they're so close. Whatever. I don't know. It's an interesting. Just the, no, I mean, I get it. The, like, oppression of a SWAT team just coming into your house with assault rifles, just going to gun down your family for no reason. Like, cool, cool, cool. But those are American soldiers. Are they really? Was this in Florida? This is in Florida. Oh, my God. That's even crazier. Isn't it? That's wild. I Sadly, I can believe it, but. Yeah. It's Florida, dude. Everything happens in Florida. It's true. Yeah. I love that the I love that Florida like um uh whatever media laws like that it's just part of Florida culture to report everything. That's why we get all the Florida man stuff is because it's I believe it's like law to report certain things and mm. um yeah that's why we have the whole like Florida man thing um is because all of the uh like I don't know degenerate reports come out from there. And it's public record. Like you, you have to be able to access these criminal reports, which is why um, it makes for good sensational news. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's also just Florida's like the land of milk and honey. Once F- everybody gets there, <laughs> and then it just sucks because everybody's there. It's like what the one of the most populous states in the country. Yeah, it's uh, blowing up. Like they are going to get a lot of money and congressional seats after the census. Yeah, I totally. bet. Until they're you think so? Oh yeah, definitely. They're one of the fastest growing states. Texas is also going to grow quite a bit as well. So Colorado. Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude! I love Texas. Me too. Me more, man. 
Florida can go suck a dick, though. It is not I a hate, place I like to go to. But Texas I hate that great. state. Uh, yeah, I really don't enjoy it. it. Yeah, I'm not not too big of a fan either. Right, I need to go back and enjoy Miami again because my only like good experience in Miami was when the hotels were like all booked, and so my government allowance got doubled. <laughs> And I only needed like 15 more dollars to afford a hotel, but they doubled it. So I went to, it's called the Alhambra downtown. And it's like a $350 hotel room for one night. Thanks, government. Wait, why was the government putting you in a hotel? That's when I was working for FEMA. I was doing disastrous stuff. And I was doing my training in Miami, picking up all my gear before I went out to the destitute places where everybody's trailers were overturned. What did you do for FEMA? had took photos of stuff and had people fill out forms so that they could get disaster relief that's a there's cool a lot job. of fraud so they had to i basically had to just go verify stuff and Dude, that's interesting the poorest people eh, i don't know i've maybe might have known poor people in dallas but the most destitute people i think i've ever met in this hemisphere have been yeah as like jesus living in one room apartments just stuff is flooded and it just stays flooded. It's pretty nasty. So what kind of fraud did you have to check on? People claiming they would live places that they didn't actually live. That like, oh yeah, I was in this house. This got destroyed. It was due to the disaster. It's like, really? Because this place looks like it's been abandoned for a few years. And then <laughs> I remember one time I went up and like knocked on one of the neighbor's door to ask. And he came up and it was in a dirty wife beater. And he had, it wasn't a mullet, but like, mullet adjacent haircut and then his like three dirty kids came and were running around and they're polite enough i just asked them questions but that was also in the same neighborhood where somebody pulled a gun on me because i accidentally drove on their lawn but i mean everything was fucking destroyed from the hurricane so it's like sorry i didn't realize <laughs> did you pull out a gun back and point it at him no dude i was just driving around in my crappy little car which i didn't know at the time it was infested with mice I drove all around the country, like 100,000 miles, and I didn't know I had a mouse trap in the back of my car. Ugh, God. <laughs> anyway, no, I just, like, drove on this dude's lawn. He came out. He had a pumped stomach, like, massive gash down his abdomen. And, like, I don't know what it was from, probably from drugs, but definitely had, like, an 88 tattooed on his neck. Yeah. Damn. Pulled it out, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Like, this is your property. Like, these are all dirt roads. I'm kind of lost. He was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I overreacted. Like, it's actually right over here. And I was like, thanks, sir. Goodbye. Like, I would not have been safe if I was black. But, like, they were all super nice to me. So, like. So, that's, a, that's, a, that's a W for you. It's a privilege, yeah, boys. Yeah, total W. That's what privilege is. <laughs> you should have you been like, you know, what's that, bitch? You know, I. Do you know who I am? I'm a I'm a low level bureaucrat for the for fucking FEMA. You, <laughs> you servile piece of shit. See, I'm coming. I'm from the feds. They're gonna yeah, love the that. <laughs> they love the feds. No, I hadn't. Yeah. I almost wish that I had done it in Miami because people had crazy stories in Miami. It was like go out and do your all of your work between nine and eleven a.m. Like all the gangsters are gonna be hungover. Like, the kids will answer, the grandmas will answer, but you're not going to get people like Bendejos coming out and pulling guns on you. So it's like, don't go around in the afternoons. Just, like, do it early in the morning. Everybody's going to be drunk or, like, hungover from the drugs they're doing the last night. 
it'll be all right. But I was just in like in the middle of the panhandle of Florida. So there was literally nothing. It was like crocodile alley and like people in trailers. And that was it. That's that's America. Yeah, that's, like, that's America. That's I got to see a pretty cool, a cool uh, rodeo. I went to a rodeo and it was like a, a youth racing league. And there were some uh, seminal Indians that actually won. They were good. It was just like going around barrels, but racing horses in a little track. That's kind of sick. That's yeah, pretty cool. Then I gorged myself on Taco Bell. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. There you go. I want some Taco Bell right now. And I went to uh, I went to this place that did not nobody spoke English, and I got these tacos where it was just like pulled beef in corn tortillas with cilantro. So good. It was like six dollars the first day, and then I went back the second day, and it was twenty two dollars for the same meal. And I was like, wait a minute. But I didn't care. It was so good, and there were literally like two restaurants in town. So, and I was staying at an Econo Lodge, like watching the mm-hmm. yeah. watching the Astros win the World Series. And Cheat these... to win the World Series, you motherfucker. True. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll come back to that. But yes, they did so, cheat for sure. I have a problem, guys. You know, now that we're talking about the South, just generally, and the upper part of Florida is the South. Yes. Know, let's be real here. So I follow a few like Facebook, I don't know, pages that are about old houses that are for sale. And I keep seeing like, you know, Louisiana, like Mississippi, and they're like maybe a hundred, a hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and they're nice houses. Oh yeah. They're like nice, nice. And I think I'm gonna have to move to the south. I can't resist for forever. You gotta go down and buy a big house. (laughs) They're like, it's like $500 a month, and there's no way in the South that the property taxes are that high. Mm. Like, you know, you can, I can pay less than I pay for rent right here to own a house in like, you know, some rural part of the South. And like, yeah, maybe there are ghosts, right? Like, (laughs) maybe, maybe the specter of Stonewall Jackson comes and haunts me for a little bit, but like, it's worth it. $500 a month. I know you just have to sacrifice being able to like, uh, go do cool stuff. Cause like those cheap houses, like an hour away from New Orleans. It wasn't even Uh, that far. I wouldn't want to. I mean, there are cooler cities than New Orleans, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, say no, nah, dude. I'm a pass. Cool. No. I'm no. I'm moving back south. I'm moving to Austin or Dallas again. Yeah, or like, I mean, I guess North Carolina doesn't count as the South, but North Carolina is no, that's better because there's still it's a little more expensive, but it's still cheaper than here, and there's lots of cool shit to do. Yeah, I'm uh, in North Carolina or Virginia too. They're oh, cool Virginia's expensive as fuck these days, you though. You don't like yeah, Louisiana? Uh, no, I've been there twice. And <laughs> really i mean no it's a cool to visit like not a cool place that. to live kind of place i mean the the weather is unpleasant um i it's don't like too warm it was it, no it's it's the humidity i like warm yeah. but I, i'm not a big swampy lifestyle you, you don't like the bayou no but i don't know i get <laughs> it, i mean new orleans is cool if you want to like go to the french quarter and view tourist stuff i don't right, know but it's it's not a well kept city. Is that kind of where you're getting at? I mean, it was destroyed. <laughs> yeah, by President George W. Bush. It wasn't, you know, nature. 
No, yeah, nature had nothing to do with that. <laughs> Dude, at Bush's library, they have a, a crisis room, and one of the things is like, what would you do in this situation? And one of the ones is Hurricane Katrina, and there's like four different options you can pick, and it basically, like, whenever you pick it, it's like, good choice, but this is why Bush did this. <laughs> it's oh. really funny. It basically tells you, like, everything that wasn't his choice is the wrong answer. It's pretty funny good old w oh w i wanted to mention about the book when we were talking about uh yeah let's do that uh, what's up what was the story it was the one where they're trying to escape the eeriest part was when they're they're trying to cryogenically freeze themselves as their like last resort after they shoot their rocket and they don't get all the way to the next planet um, mm-hmm. And then they try to freeze themselves, but like in the dog fight that they had with planetary security, they lost some of the cryo gel or something. And if you don't mm-hmm. get perfectly down to like one degree Kelvin, it doesn't work. So they're like drowning in the fluid. Oh God, such claustrophobia. And I don't normally get claustrophobia, but like he did a very good job of freaking me out. Drowning is very scary. Dude, and then not only drowning, but then being sent back to fucking Earth. Like, that was the most depressing story to read. It was all like, yeah, we're going to take our hyperdrive. They obviously get into some kind of conflict and then get, you know, out and they can't do the cryo-freeze thing. And then they hyperspace back and they come back to fucking Earth. And it's like, and I was hoping that Frigo would, like, kill everybody and take over the planetary ship but of course the xenoids win in the end so what's the fucking point yeah dude he tied it all together the the bugs have replaced the humans with robots that look like humans because she would have killed them all if they were actual people but she like stabs one in the neck and she shoots another one in the stomach like 14 times but they're just robots they just get up and choke her out which goes back to that um that uh, the story with the sergeant, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yep. Rip. Yeah, and the crazy genius kid is the brother of the sergeant. He's his younger brother. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, good. Yeah. It all the ties together. Um. So I think this is about the time when we talk about like, well, what do we think of the whole book? I'm gonna do a little round table here. I'll start because I always get the last word. Um. So. I thought that this book was like, it was a page turner. I did not feel bored reading this book at all. Um, I thought that Yoss's points were a little bit, um, I don't know, like bland at times, right? Like I wasn't really vibing with uh, the, the lessons he was trying to give, but especially in the longer stories, right? Like not the, the little essays in between. Um, he is he is an excellent renderer of human psychology. He really knows how to write dialogue. Um, he really gets how how like I don't know average humans think, right? So when we think about like the voxel game, right? Like he he knows what a Cuban or an American is thinking when they're watching a sports game, right? whether it be soccer or football or whatever, right? Um, He knows what a player is thinking. He knows what it's like to be desperate, um, what it's like to want something more and not get it. And I I found that his access to 
um, to expressing in in its most visceral way how people feel is the most recommendable part of this book. Um, whereas maybe the moral lessons he's trying to vaguely dance around um, were the weakest part. And I think as a collection, he does a surprisingly good job considering how he structured the book of making a comprehensive world rather than um, a set of different stories that don't relate. He doesn't like, he's not trying to weave the web in such a way where every story relates to every other story, but he gives enough connections where you feel like you're reading a book, right? It's not just a set of short stories, but he doesn't make them so connected that it's um, intended to be comprehensive. It leaves something to the imagination. Uh, so that those are my thoughts on the book. Um, Troy, tell us what you think. I agree with what you just said about it being somewhat connected, but I think Alex hit on it earlier. I hadn't thought of this, but it is just like the connections between people and it like slowly grows piece by piece. And I feel like it's structured that way too, where each story has one connecting piece to an earlier story. Like somebody is always referencing something that happened in the last story, or if it's a surprise, like the Xenoids being, or the, um, planetary security actually being robots that was two stories ago so like i don't know i like the way that it was all linked together it's definitely different than sci-fi that i've read before but in a good way i didn't feel like yeah there's too much like pontificating or high morals that he was getting to try or trying to get across the best part of it was just yeah the making us feel what the humans in this and at the end ete brute would feel in terms of like being alone feeling oppressed like hoping for something and losing constantly the only the he had a couple lines that like stood out where i was like this is just what he thinks but the only one that i actually marked down was in the last story because i know that he struggled with well one of his vices is women but i think it also said somewhere that he struggled with sex addiction and it's actually the girl that says it. She says it about Etu Brute. Um, in Barrio 13, a girl learns when you dig until you get to the bottom of anything, you'll find sex. And that's it. It can be dangerous to your sanity to wonder what lies beyond it. It's almost un- always something slobbery, gross, malignant, and yet pathetic. Like a wad of phlegm that comes to life and tries to speak. I was like, ooh, damn, that's real. And I felt like that was just Yoss himself saying that. But otherwise, I felt like he didn't try to put himself too much into the characters. It wasn't like Cormac McCarthy, where it's like, all right, dude, this is an autobiography. I didn't get that vibe yeah. at all. <laughs> Obviously, because this is about aliens. But even still, I felt like it was very distant, where he was showing humanity. But it was more like a common humanity, where everybody could understand it. But one thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot to talk about last time is i honestly think that sci-fi is the most fertile genre of any literature because it really is like everything that's either today or in the past all other genres are based off of something that's real in our world whereas sci-fi is the only thing the only genre where it's just pure imagination of what could be like we don't know what aliens look like so it's completely his imagination And then likewise, throughout time, you're like seeing the society's hopes and fears 
like if you look at sci-fi from the 19 teens and it's like what the world will be like in the 1980s and everybody has these weird jet packs and these phones that are like kind of mobile but they can only like imagine the technology that they had at that time but it's like hopeful like the good uses you can have for it but then also incredibly evil and like despairing like worrying about how it can all go wrong and like they're not wrong per se but it's based on what they knew in that time period in the 1930s and the 1950s and the 1970s yas and cuba in the 1990s like it varies a little bit but it's like you get to see into the psyche of where they were writing it but it's also completely imaginative which is why i think sci-fi is one of if not the coolest genre yeah i mean i think i think what throws me off a little bit is that i mean and i'm not like a i don't know a science fiction aficionado but i do get the sense that science fiction in you know maybe the early early 20th century or mid 20th century had a um an aspirational sense in which it like really distanced itself from uh from the the time period in which it lived Mm. right like it imagined a much farther future with much greater um intellectual capacities and technological capacities whereas like yas's world is so immediate right like it is it is so obviously what he's experiencing with some science fiction overtones right like it's not it's not so it's not so distant it's right now Except for, you know, with, like I said, with some, like, some different technology. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe speaks to a, you know, like the closing of possibilities, right? Mm. Where it doesn't feel like you can escape. Where in the early, tw- early 20th century, you know, depending on what your ideology was, right? It did feel like there were possibilities for the future. Obviously, things were horrible, but it did in many ways, depending on exactly what decade we're talking about and where you were. But it did feel like like maybe there was a way through the impasse. Whereas I feel like Yoss is expressing almost like a not giving up necessarily, but like the kind of um last stand an artist makes against like inevitable doom as opposed to like actual uh, like freedom or emancipation or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, I feel like Yoss's work is definitely very immediate, but I just like that you get to take things that are incredibly real, but then you just put on alien clothes and it's like, ooh, poof, brand new story. You just like dress up normal stories, but the setting is always unique and different. It's completely created by the author, like not drawing on the history necessarily. That and I think like good sci-fi is benefits from using the fantastic as a device like to 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 amplify to amplify the experiences to which in you know is also amplifying um like the emotional responses and like the the kind of like the range of uh, possibilities for the characters to um i don't know what the word i'm thinking of i don't know why i can't um amplify the characters I just like, like lost my train aspirations of aspirations. I lost my train of thought. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. That 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 train never left the station, my dude. 
No, but the point is... Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> What's the fucking point, dude? What's the fucking point, Alex? Um, the Using the fantastic in sci-fi is a good literary device because it... Yes. It, it amplifies... Um, it can, I don't know. What does it amplify? Everything. You the, the, the It amplifies human society. It puts everything... Yeah. He can be comic. He can be um, extreme, right? Like, all, there's no physical limitation to what people can do more mm-hmm. or less right well, it just draws you in too because it's fantastical he's not talking about like i don't know living in society today it's just something to draw your attention in and it does amplify like all of the emotions that we feel like moy being an artist that feels ostracized and literally kills himself for his work like he could have written that about a crazy artist living in 2020 but you wouldn't get the guy up on stage injected in his penis exploding <laughs> and his eyeballs blowing apart. Like it just, I don't know. It does amplify the drama of it just because like what Sam said, you can really take it to whatever extent you want. There are no physical limitations. And it also removes you from the subject matter a little bit because we're not talking about an actual nine-year-old in Havana now you know what I, like we're not talking about the the we the plight directly of sex workers in Havana like at the moment and like all the gritty details like giving it that fantastic and impossible setting because like this is not written as a speculative fiction book this is a future that we all know couldn't it wouldn't happen it's closer to a fairy tale than like a a picture of what a future could be and i think that makes it a little more palatable but at the same time, more revealing, right? Because yeah. We can, because we can swallow the world, right? Otherwise, it would just be so... Because this book is, is grim, but it's not depressing to read. It's charming. It has a, a, a quality about it that is like light. Um, yeah, so to go on with that. What did you think of the whole book? What, was, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Um, so I mean, I was I was impressed that the long short stories could stand on their own, but he was able to weave them together in a way that like was subtle. And we kind of had been dis- had, as we had discussed, like all like different characters pop up in different stories, and I never felt like he was hitting you over the head with it. Like the way that it was kind of pulled together, especially at the end, felt really natural to me, which I, I was impressed by. Like that the ability to like put this whole book together um, I, I think takes a, a good writer um, in terms of what I didn't like about it. I, I, I personally, I just don't think like this style necessarily is like my favorite type of book. Like I, it, it has a bit of like a, a whimsical edge to it, which isn't necessarily like my go-to. That's not really a criticism of the writing itself though. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got the sense that um, Yas is a author in progress, right? I feel like he can he can probably rise to the occasion. Like, I actually do think he's not done yet, in a sense. Um, and he has certain very strong writing skills. And if he, if he you know, because, like, this whole book avoids exposition, as far as, like, descriptive exposition is concerned. Most everything is written as an inner dialogue. Um, most, if it's not, it's in that short essay format, which is still kind of an inner dialogue, 
right? Like it's like somebody telling you what's happening in society. Um, if he really leaned into um, description and trying to incorporate that into his story, I think I think he would I think he would rise to the level of being a, a great writer as opposed to like a really good one. I wonder um, how his because this book's almost thirty years old. I I wonder how his other books hold up. Yeah, I think it was also interesting, or it's difficult to like string it all together. Because what did he write this? He wrote this over the period of like six years. I think yeah, the first like, one was ninety three, and the last one was ninety nine. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess it was published in what two thousand two thousand one, so twenty years old. But he's been writing it for a long time. Um, yeah. We should definitely read his other books that are translated into English. That'd be fun. I think this might be the only one, unfortunately. Oh, for real? No, they got one other one. Super Extra Grande. That sounds like a great book. Super Extra Grande? I have no idea what it's about, but Super Extra Grande is the other one by Restless Books. Condom Knots as well. Condom Knots. Condom Knots. Yeah. Red Dust. They have a few. Oh, okay. I thought I for some reason maybe it was an old interview where because um, a planet for rent is like his most famous one. Mm. Um, but yeah, obviously we can definitely read another one. I would love that. It well, looks fun. like he's gotten a bit more popular recently because what did it say? It was first printed in two thousand one, and then it got reprinted in twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen. Mm. All right. So we wanted do we. Want to do condom knots? That looks interesting. Uh, Red dust, the year two thousand. Nope, that's not him. That's a different guy. So it looks like condom knots or red dust, right? Uh, condom knots, super extra grande, or red dust. Yeah. Okay, I want to do super extra grande. That looks. I love the name of that book. Yeah, it's good. The cover, the art, the artwork on all these books is is nice. Top notch, dude. It really is good. He so he's also he's fifty one. Wait, he's fifty one. He doesn't look fifty one at all. I know. It's an old. It's an old uh, picture, perhaps. Maybe. Maybe he's just uh, all that guy. All that ice cream and all that weightlifting. All right. So super extra grande is about a vet, an alien vet. Ooh, I love that. No, I think it's a human vet that deals with specializes in treating enormous alien animals. Damn. Okay, cool. I'm down. I wish you could buy it right from Restless Books. You can. You can? Yeah. What an excellent plug. Oh, you can buy it from Restless Books. It links me to, to Amazon, which is like, don't do that if you have your own bookstore. Yeah. What the Jesus fuck? Christ. Oh, cool. No, you can buy it from Restless Books. Also, um, we... We'll probably, assuming we get the interview with Yas, um, be shouted out on social media by Restless Books. So that's exciting. That is exciting. What, yeah, else, did they, what else do they put out? Um, they put out a bunch of stuff. This is actually a. Um, it's it's focused on international publishing, and there's like they that. have quite a few titles. So yeah, that's cool. We we could do a Restless Book series. You know who knows? Yo, they have a a membership. They do six books a year, ten dollars a month. It's not too bad. One hundred twenty. I mean, it's actually a horrible deal, but <laughs> holy shit, you're right. That is a that that's not. It's paying more. Right, it's one hundred twenty dollars a year for six bucks. So that's there for uh, six books. So that's twenty dollars 
a book, which is less than what I've at least spent on Yas's books. Yeah, damn. So, no, no offense, but I'm not going to sign up for that shit. Not right. until we become sponsors and get free books. No, dude, I'm totally down to read some of their books, though. There's a lot of, ooh, Between Life and Death. I've heard good things about that. We could do a graphic novel. They have Pancho Vila takes Zacatecas. Oh. Not Wait, you don't want... Novels. Come on, dude. Graphic novels are good. I'm not against graphic novels. I just read a couple. So then why'd you groan, you dumb, dumb bitch? I guess I'm just a dumb bitch. Oh, okay. Sorry, I didn't realize my appraisal of you was... So Wake accurate. up. Wake up, you sheep. <laughs> um, we could do a thriller. They have a thriller section that is actually empty. I clicked on the link and there's nothing there. Nothing there's to no come, thriller. dude. It's to come. Like these guys need to kind of step it up. Uh, it's an independent publisher, dude. Yeah, and get Chloe in the mix. She'll fix the website. Yeah, she'll totally fix the website. They've got check read the faith. Um, yeah, they have a couple classics. I saw Don Quixote around as dude, well. Dude, I want to read that. They have the Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, so. You know, it's like, you know, somebody gets like some version of a classic and that's how they support their publishing company. Yep. That's Dude, cool. I'm down to read Don Quixote. That's my, whenever we get around to our section where it's like books that I should have read but have not yet, that was going to be my choice. Mm, I definitely want to read that because that is definitely high on the list for books I should have read but haven't. Mm. I feel like I've read a good number of the classics, but not that one. Yep, yep, same. Um, but yeah, anyway, so um, I guess to kind of wrap up the book discussion, we can continue on with everything else. We talked a little bit about our um, our total thoughts about the book, but I just wanted to end on, um, because these individual stories were so good in their own right, like what was your, after having finished the book, your favorite story that Yas introduced? Probably the platinum card. Um, I Damn. Think, okay. I think maybe because it was uh, the most that just involved like an interpersonal relationship, and I probably just prefer that. You know what I mean? It resonated. Mm-hmm. It, hit, it it hit with me more than any of the others did. Okay, Troy. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I liked the voxel st- voxel game story. I liked the escape tunnel. And then I also like the last story too, like for different reasons. Like the voxel one was exciting, just like Alex said. The last story, the or platinum card was like the most emotional, and I really liked that the focus being on humans, and then all of a sudden the focus is on an alien. But I feel for him or them. Um, and then the one where they try to escape—that's just like some good sci-fi shtick. There's a space fight; they get frozen in gel. It's super depressing. I don't know. I kind of liked a variety of the stories. They're all different enough. Mm. I mean, I got to go with the Voxel game, guys. That was that blew my fucking socks off. <laughs> I I I love that story. I'm I'm a nerd, but I love watching sports. And uh, you know, my formative memories are watching like the Patriots play, and you know, obviously. <laughs> The Patriots have been in a lot of Super Bowls in the last 20 years. And, um, uh, 
you know, I just got like such a, not just a nostalgic vibe, but I literally felt like I was there in the championship. Like, you know, we gotta win. It's the, you know, this is, this is our time. This is our moment. Um, those kinds of vibes. And he translated that so well into prose and in something like sports, it's very difficult in a, a somewhat like a static medium, like, um, like a book to express that. And he just, he fucking killed it. And, um, especially with the idea of, you know, earth being this like colonized place. And like, this is the one place where humanity can get its dignity. Um, it's pathetic in a way, right? Because if you were only able to compete in sports, you really can't compete in anything, but it also has its own sort of like, I don't know, desperate beauty to it. Cause it, it's reaching for the ability to, you know, for equalization and um, uh, for that that dignity that is sought. And I just, I love that story so much. Um, I'm probably going to read it again after, um, as we move on, because I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I'd play Voxel. It sounds tight. It sounds really <laughs> cool. So speaking of new sports, so I was, uh, I, I follow this, um, this sports talk radio guy called uh, uh, his name's Pat McAfee. And he's fallen in love with a sport called Aussie rules. Um, uh, I think it's Aussie rules football or something like that. I forget what the full name of the sport is, but it's like Australia is like homegrown sport. And it is so fucking cool. It's like, it's like, I don't know, rugby and soccer and football, like all in one game. And the the field is huge there's basically no rules about hurting people and uh the like the field is like two football fields in total yardage size and there's a shit ton of kicking and there's a lot of catching and there's a shit ton of tackling and they have these things called marks where um so if you kick the ball as a pass somebody you can actually as the 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 team on the offensive side of the ball, you can jump on the back of somebody who's on the defense and jump up and catch the ball. And it looks so fucking cool. I really want to watch a game. Hell yeah. That sounds cool. Dude, rugby is just cool. Rugby's intense. Like they do not mess around in the Commonwealth. (laughs) Is there like a big thing with the, uh, like colonized countries who play rugby and the, the former colonizers. Is that like a big deal? Yeah, I watched a rugby game in Uganda. It was good. They were intense. Like that guy could pop my head between his thighs. Like they, he was basically a colossar. The dude was so ripped. It was insane, and he was incredibly fast for his size too. It was actually kind of frightening. The Uganda national team was pretty sweet. They had a uh, American um, rugby player called the Meat Cleaver. Was his thing. I tried to watch rugby for a little bit. It's a little bit slow paced for my um, my taste, and not as dramatic when it like the get, the rate of play is actually going up. Um, but yeah, I was the U.S. rugby team was in the whatever rugby World Cup qualified for it at one point, and so I watched it. All right, fam. I think that's it. I think we finished a Planet for Rent. We are two books in to our foreign sci-fi unit. Next week or next every time we anytime we record this we're going to be reading um uh we 
what what the fuck we is, who's but yeah i know it's yevenji zamayatin so we're gonna be reading we by yevenji zamayatin um it's a book written um in about 1921 and it is the in the assumed influential book for Brave New World, which is the influential book for 1984. So it's a dystopian novel. It's Russian. Um, he he wrote it during the 1920s, which is a very interesting time because in Russia that was during uh, – it was either during or immediately after the Russian Civil War between the Whites and the Reds, which was a very um, horrible time. And so it's not – it is not an immediate critique of something like Stalinization, which you could you could certainly see in something like Brave New World or 1984. Um, and yeah, so we're excited to read that. I don't know. Um, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to read the whole book for next week. It says it's 63,000 words, so we're probably going to read like half the book. Is that the deal, do you think? Um, yeah. I th- yeah, there's a chapter break. It looks like page 100 and 18 thank you everybody for listening we've enjoyed it so much we're very excited to hopefully get yas on the program so we can uh interview him and ask us all of ask him all of our uh burning questions um and we will see you next time take care bye night everyone